We begin the next chunk on page 51. As you scan through the next few pages, you see that this section is rather long, ending on page 58. Again, that asterisk there is a signal for us as readers that this whole section functions together for a purpose that helps us understand the power of nothing. The headquarters of the Food and Drug Administration, situated on a campus called White Oak, on the far edge of Silver Spring, Maryland, seems as close to the rest of the federal medical establishment as it is to Pluto. That's kind of outrageous. That is a comparison. It's a simile again that really shows how far away they are in ideology as well as distance. There is no metro to White Oak, and it takes half an hour to drive from the sprawling campus to the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. The FDA's physical isolation belies its position as the nation's principal regulator of consumer products. No drug is sold without the agency's approval. There will be no prescriptions for any placebo either unless clinical trials have demonstrated its effectiveness to the satisfaction of the FDA. One of the absolutely fundamental problems that we have is the use of the term placebo, which does nobody any good, Robert Temple told me, echoing a complaint made by virtually everyone who deals with the subject. Temple, for many years, ran who has for many years run the FDA's drug evaluation department, is an owlish man with short, thick mustache and circular glasses. His office is so filled with towering stacks of files that after you enter, it takes a moment to find him. Just because something is called a placebo group, he said, everyone assumes that what happens in that group is a result of the placebo effect, and that is absolutely not true. Let's pause and look at some of the techniques. Note the description, the details with which he described the FDA. And notice the details in the description of how Robert Temple is explained. The terms that are used here and the contrasts like Owlish, Pluto, the stacks is it's all intended to help add to why these places are so important in determining what is meant and done with the placebo. Now you see that he, we get background on Temple. So that's another method we can use is not only to give background and credence to where, but who. Temple, who has worked at the FDA for four decades, rarely makes a decision without angering somebody. <laughs> he has been regarded as a meddlesome reactionary by HIV activists and others who insist that drugs be released more rapidly. The more conservative medical establishment frequently accuses the agency of endorsing the wishful thinking of drug manufacturers and to the large and growing community that supports alternative 
approaches to medicine, Temple is Dr. No. Sounds like people from all across the spectrum give him problems. Temple said that he understands why placebos attract people who become frustrated when science fails to provide definitive answers. The persistence of what people believe will save their lives as opposed to the evidence is staggering, he said. So people are talking about using placebos as drugs, but I have no idea what that means in practical terms. How would that work? Tantalizing hints and possible effects are not data. And Temple says there are no data that would suggest placebos or drugs. There are several studies, though, that illustrate the basis for his skepticism. A placebo effect is commonly observed during trials of blood pressure medications. To qualify for such studies, subjects are supposed to have blood pressure that exceeds 140 over 90 in at least one of the two measurements. As soon as somebody enters those studies, his or her blood pressure falls an average of five or six millimeters of mercury, Temple said. That is significant, but it is not a placebo response and is not a response to being in the study. It is often the result of doctors inflating readings of rounding up. If a person's blood pressure is 138, over 88, for example, investigators will often include him. When you use an automatic blood pressure cuff to establish a baseline for these studies, the entire placebo effect vanishes. When a drug or placebo is under study, subjects are usually divided into two groups. Neither group knows what it is getting, nor do the doctors, but one group generally receives the drug and the other a placebo. There is a better way, Temple said. If you want to see if there is a placebo effect, use three arms in a drug trial, not two. Tell them, some of you will be getting a drug, some will get a tablet that looks like a drug, but is nothing but a sugar pill, and some of you will get nothing at all. It seems to me, he went on, that if there is any substantial placebo effect, there might ought to be a difference between the group that knows it's getting nothing and the group that doesn't know it's getting nothing. If there's no difference, then what are we talking about? Because it's not a placebo effect. It turns out that there have been many trials of the type Temple mentioned. In 2001, the Danish epidemiologist Osbjörn Orjartsen of Copenhagen's Nordic Cochrane Center, along with his colleague Peter Gotch, published a systematic review of 114 clinical trials that compared patients who received a placebo with subjects who were told that they would receive no medicine at all. The researchers attempted to assess the combined impact of many different kinds of trials during 
using meta-analysis, a statistical technique for extracting information from studies that are not statistically significant by themselves. Their article, Is the Placebo Powerless? An Analysis of Clinical Trials Comparing Placebo with No Treatment, published in the England New England Journal of Medicine, was a long overdue response to Beecher's 1995 paper. One of the things that is a method the writer is using here, by using the full title of that article and establishing where it was published in a prestigious place, also suggests that the writer is credible because he's probably read this and is now going on to summarize what was in that article. That may be a technique you can use. In almost every case, the researchers reported, there was essentially no difference between the placebo group and the openly untreated group. There were particular exceptions in studies of pain where there was a slight but measurable placebo effect. Since we are uh, physiologically physiologically capable of manufacturing our own painkillers, endorphins, the result may not have been surprising. Expectations and suggestion clearly influence behavior. And when we expect to receive medicine, our bodies often begin to prepare for it. As the evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers recently pointed out in The Folly of Fools, his book about historical necessity of deceit, what the brain expects to happen in the near future affects its physiological state. Trivers' theory would explain the fact that has often baffled scientists. The placebo effect doesn't appear to work with Alzheimer's patients. Trivers suggests that this is because most people who have Alzheimer's disease are unable to anticipate the future and therefore are unable to prepare for it. Now, while that whole part is sad, you have to think about what the author has done here. He's added what we would call a parenthetical. And everything in those parenthetical parentheses is an example that gives further detail to the paper that he's talking about. Now, we needed that parenthetical because it was an additional support, but the author really didn't want to interrupt the study that he was talking about from the Danish researchers and returns to it in line 564. The Danish researchers repeated the study in 2004 and again last year, incorporating new data each time. The results and their conclusions remained the same. And so now we have that quoted material which really, again, is that technique of using this to sum up your point and prove one of the elements that you've been leading toward. The results and their conclusions remained the same. We found little evidence in general that placebos had powerful clinical effects. Orbjartsen wrote, outside the setting of clinical trials, there is no justification for the use of placebos. That sounds pretty damning for the ideas and the power of them. 
Kapchik has great respect for Jartson, yet he is wary of relying on meta-analysis. So it's a contrast here. He's rejecting the way the research was done and believes that an honest interaction between a doctor and a patient can significantly alter the outcome of treatment. That was the point of his study of irritable bowel syndrome, in which some subjects told they would not be treated IBS, a chronic gastrointestinal disorder, is one of the most common reasons that people seek medical care. Effective long-term therapies have proved elusive. In Kapchuk's study, 80 patients were randomly divided into two groups. The patients in this first group received a placebo pill twice a day. Those in the second received nothing. Before the study began, both groups were told that placebos were inert or inactive pills like sugar pills without any medication in them. They were also informed that placebos have been shown in rigorous clinical study to produce significant mind-body self-healing processes. Patients who received the openly distributed placebo scarred, scored far better on standard assessments of their conditions than those who received nothing. There were also statistically significant differences in the severity of symptoms. Although a group of 80 patients is too small to draw definitive conclusions, honesty seemed to work. Osborne's stuff is a constant intellectual challenge, Kapchik wrote in an email. His meta-analyses are tops, great methods, very careful, clear, yet Kapchuk also pointed out that placebos are not the only interventions that can cause complicated reactions. Drugs do, too. Opioids, for example, increase pain in 10% of those who take them. Antibiotics don't always work, and neither does cortisone, a powerful steroid used each year by millions of people. Meta-analyses are useful to help understand large amount of data from different trials. But statistical results that combine information from a variety of medical centers with different kinds of patients, often in different countries, administrated under different conditions, cannot be uniform and therefore cannot be conclusive. Jartson and Kapchuk are united on at least one front. Like Wayne Jonas, they agree that the medical system needs to change. You have to put this into the context of society in which you live, Rob Jartson told me, because I think this may be as much a matter of philosophy as science. There is an anti-technological, anti-science feeling in the West. We constantly see frustration with the limits of medicine. The placebo can be seen in some sense as a logical avenue for those frustrations. Everyone's, everyone wants a simple pain-free solution. But I wonder if that approach isn't just the mirror image of the pharmacological way of handling illness, that there's a pill for every disease. The entire idea of a placebo is very soapy, or Jartson continued, it slips away whenever you try to find a border. That has always been true. 
After all, for many people, a placebo is just a sugar pill. For others, the definition includes the entire ritual of treatment, the complete interaction between doctor and patient. Increased attention has mostly raised new questions. What? Mm. And again, we return to how we began. Hypothetical questions. What are the physical and psychological mechanisms that produce placebo effects? What are the conditions they most easily affect? And can we actually identify people who respond to placebos? Scientists now have bits of answers to some of those questions, but to reach their goal and introduce placebos into clinical practice, they will need to answer all of them. We begin a new section on page 58 and it continues uh, to page 63. One of the things that the writer has done, and I, I feel like I, I've seen this several times, as that person transitions to the next section, the previous se the sentence before that really serves as a transition. And it's a really good example of a technique that as you become more sophisticated with your writing, we've often been taught that we need transitions, but we've told to use transitional phrases and words. The sentence that we saw before this section here on page 58 has none of those, but it serves as transitioning your thoughts from the previous section to what you should be looking for in the next section. Scientists now have bits of answers to some of those questions. So it's been answering those questions in that previous section. But to reach their goal and to introduce placebos into clinical practice, they will need to answer all of them. I predict that the next section will be all about how we answer the rest of those questions. So let's see. Ted Kapchik gets a great deal of pleasure from focusing on what other people will reject. Indifference seems to motivate him. I was raised in a crazy home, and it prepared me to accept any proposition, he said. That, he once told me, is why he was so active in the 60s. It was a time when the underpinnings of the universe were questioned. Both Kapchik's parents, who were Poles survived the Holocaust. That really defines a lot of what I, I do. My father was a red, so I have tendency to get pleasure from subversiveness. That is a word gap or a concept gap for me. I'm not really sure what he's talking about there, and I'd have to do some research about what he means. But I do understand the purpose of including that. He's using his historical background to help define why he's the way he is. And as he is this researcher, he's using that as an asset to guide his work. A particularly radical son of the 60s, Kapchik was one of the founders of the Columbia University chapter of Students for a Democratic Society in 1965. But the organization was soon dominated by a faction that became the Weather Underground. That was too radical even for Kepchik. He fled to the West Coast. I was hanging out with the San Francisco Red Guards and reading Mayo and trying to get away from U.S. imperialism. He said, I was militant and crazy. But at some point I said, Ted, this is not being human.
Kapchik decided to pursue studies in Chinese philosophy and medicine at the source. Beijing had yet to open its borders to Americans, but Kapchik hoped that his revolutionary bona fides would prompt the leadership to make an exception. My request to study there was delivered to the government by members of the Black Panther Party, he told me. Even that didn't work. The Chinese denied the request, and Kapchik spent much of the next decade studying in Macau. Today, it is hard to imagine Ted Kapchuk as a radical, let alone a fugitive. He is an observant Jew who wears a yarmulk, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, on top of a shaggy bowl haircut that looks as if he'd copied the Beatles circa 1964, then let it grow. A devotee of Eastern thought, he bars shoes from his house and speaks in a hushed, measured voice. David Carradine would have played him beautifully. Kapchuk is the first prominent professor at Harvard Medical School since Eric Erickson with neither a medical degree nor a doctorate. And it would be easy to dismiss him as a signature representative of the unsubstantiated alternative healthcare movement. But he has published scores of books articles in highly regarded peer-reviewed journals, letters, and review notes on subjects ranging from placebo research to exorcism, from cancer treatment to shaman rituals among Navajo Indians. He's a contrast in himself. He has just finished a study designed to answer a central question in placebo research. Do genes of people who respond to placebos differ in sequence? significant ways from people who don't. The data, compelling but so far preliminary, suggests that the answer is yes. Hmm. So your genes, the way you respond to placebos depends on your genes. Hmm. Ted Kepchik is the most knowledgeable person in the world on all matters placebo, Franklin Miller told me. Miller is a senior faculty member in the Department of Bioethics at the National Institutes of Health. He's done research in the scholarship and the most interesting and clinically relevant studies. One day I asked Kepchik how a man who practiced acupuncture and dispensed herbs rather than earning a PhD in biology or statistics had learned to design complicated trials. He told me that he spent years seeking the advice of the most highly respected and rigorous medical statisticians. I basically apprenticed myself, he said, and they were happy to help a quack who wanted to deal with data. Kapchuk is proud of being what he calls a card-carrying member of the Harvard establishment. It's a distinction that did not come easily even though he has received millions of dollars in funding for his projects from the National Institutes of Health. The goal is to understand placebos so that they may be used intelligently, he said one day. But this is the area where I veer from some of my colleagues. Because what do I really want? Anything that gets people away from the conveyor belts that move from the pharmaceutical houses to doctors and on to patients is worth considering. 
okay, this section is not what I thought it was going to be about. It's pretty much giving more background on Kapchuk, but it's about how he's confronting the normal way of study things, but also shows where his thinking and biases are. And then again, we have this little anything, a small sentence, anything. We need to stop pretending it's all about molecular biology. Seriouses, serious illnesses are affected by aesthetics, by art, and by the moral questions that are negotiated between practitioners and patients. Chiropractors never say that all of your pain is in your head, but orthopedists do it all the time. What a way to try to help somebody heal. Do you know how evil that is? That kind of deeply held conviction touches on the fundamental questions that challenge American medicine. Kapchuk wants to broaden the definition of healing. So that goes back to what I was thinking about the purpose of this section. Remember, it was about answering all of the questions. He's asking some questions in ways that no one else is. So perhaps I was right. Kapchuk wants to broaden the definition of healing, which is exactly what enrages many scientists. In one recent study of a major asthma drug, he and his colleagues reported that although placebos had no impact on the chemical markers that indicate whether a patient is responding to therapy, patients nonetheless reported feeling better. Kapchuk concluded that objective data should not be the only criterion for doctors to consider. Even though objective physiological measures are important, he wrote in a study published earlier this year in the New England Journal of Medicine, other outcomes such as emergency rooms, visits, and quality of life metrics may be more clinically relevant to patients and physicians. My jaw dropped when I read this. David Gorski, a professor at Wayne State University School of Medicine wrote on the science blog of Respectful Insolence. Make sure you fix that word gap if you don't know it. Other outcomes besides objective measurements of disease severity may be more clinically relevant. That kind of assertion clashes with the basic truths of the scientific method. Capture counters that we are losing sight of our goal, which is to make people feel better. The study demonstrated that without a change in the objective data, you still get incredible subjective improvement. He said, so a doctor is really supposed to say, gee, the feeling patient is feeling good, but I better ignore that and go by the numbers? It was late in the afternoon and we were sitting at Capchet's garden in Cambridge. He looked at me, threw his hands in the air. Is my approach just hocus pocus? He said softly. Isn't that what you're actually asking? You want to know the relationship between rationality and feeling and between science, critical thinking, and the art of medicine. And that boils down to one question. Do you think this entire field is based on a foundation of magical thinking? Or do you not? Once again, we see the technique of concluding with a powerful quotation. We have the last section here. 
so we know that this is going to function as the conclusion. Three years ago, a week before Thanksgiving, while I was sitting in my office, my chest began to throb. It was a diffuse pain, but pain nonetheless. I am a middle-aged man with the usual amount of stress, too much, and handle it in the usual way, denial. My cholesterol and blood pressure are normal. I exercise regularly and try to eat sensibly. Still, I have read many obituaries of healthy men of my age who ignored chest pain. So you see the technique, the method he's using here for a conclusion? He's bringing it right down to an anecdote about his own personal experience where he has to confront the very topic he's talking about. So somewhat sheepishly, I called my doctor and explained the situation, and he told me to come right over. He conducted a thorough examination, and then we talked. He told me that I was fine, that Thanksgiving is often a tense time, and that I should relax. My pain suddenly disappeared. I have written frequently of my belief that magic is for fairy tales and science is for humans. But something about that process soothed me. Does it remind you again of that quote of Kapchuk? Because I'm a damn good healer? What if it is about partially the relationship? Of course, it was a belief. It was a relief to know that I wasn't sick. But could words really banish a pain I had struggled with for hours? After I got home, I realized that I had been given a placebo. Not purposely, perhaps, but it had the same effect. My doctor told me that I was fine, and that made my pain go away. It also eased my anxiety at least as effectively as if I had swallowed a pill. My doctor takes an extremely science-based approach to his work. That's what makes him so good at his job. But that afternoon, we engaged in exactly the type of ritual that, according to Kapchuk, will have to play a critical role in the future of American health care. And, at least in this instance, it would have been hard to argue that it didn't work. <laughs>